thank you for checking out the Travel Nuggets podcast. I'm your host, Christine Goss. When it comes to travel, the best ideas don't come from guidebooks, travel sites, or Google. They come from other travel junkies. Travel junkies are filled with interesting nuggets of information and ideas for your next adventure, once you get them talking. And that's what the Travel Nuggets podcast does. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Music Play. And to learn more information about the tips shared on this podcast, visit us online at travelnuggetspodcast.squarespace.com or join our Facebook community. To share feedback or suggest a topic or guest, send me an email at travelnuggetspodcast.gmail.com. Now, let's get to today's episode. Welcome back to Travel Nuggets. Today I'm joined by writer, among other things, um, Sam Thiara, who recently wrote a brand new book called Lost and Found, in which he goes in search of a village in India, but not just any village. It is the village that his grandfather left in the, what they think is probably the early 1900s, um, going in search of his his future, making his own life. Uh, He left and went to Fiji. This book is all about trying to get back there. Um, So Sam, thanks for joining us. Oh, I appreciate it. And I look forward to having a really great conversation. So let's get started with, or just help us understand, there is this village in your mind, you knew that your grandfather came from it. It's in the Hasha Poor District. Can Can you tell me more about this village? Yeah, sure. Uh, so the, the idea behind it is that my my grandfather left uh, the village uh, at a young age, probably around eighteen or nineteen years old, and the village sits in a, the district of Hoshiarpur, and the name of the village, as far as we knew, was called Chadori, and he left the village uh, and made his way. Well, what's interesting is it's by it it literally is like uh, putting the pieces of a puzzle together because. Unfortunately, through any sort of oral history, all you're really able to do is talk to people and like parents and uncles and aunts and other people around who are going to give you nuggets of information and you start trying to piece it together, something like forensics. And what I could best determine is that he had left India in search of adventures because in in what happens with families is he was the second person, like the second, uh, he had an older brother. And historically, what happens is the older brother inherits the land and pretty much the the, the village uh, commodities and things. The younger brother usually winds up, you know, getting the short end of the stick here. And that's why you see that they're travelers, because usually what happens is, well, if there's not much here for me, they wind up traveling and they join the military administration, uh, entrepreneurship. So he wound up leaving and wanted to go to, actually, of all places, what I understand, Argentina, because there are cattle ranches. That's what he heard. How does a 17, 18-year-old in the middle of northern India determine that Argentina is the place to go when there's no social media, television, or just by word of mouth? And so he left India and wound up doing a quick stint in Australia now the boat stopped in Fiji and either you know we're assuming he either got seasick and had enough of the travel saw that the island was beautiful maybe he thought that this was Argentina 
but then that's where he settled. And, and really that's where the information about the village came to a bit of a standstill with to people pursuing it. Now, my dad's older brother, he wound up actually finding the village and going there multiple times. However, nobody really put much emphasis on trying to find the location and everything. And he, he passed away many years ago, but when he passed away, he took all that information with him. So it really was trying to draw these small pieces together to try to complete a jigsaw puzzle where pieces were actually missing and pulling it all together and, and undertaking this as, I guess, a sort of a, a family adventure that uh, I decided I wanted to, uh, to accomplish. So when you, you booked this trip to India, it was a quest. I mean, that's the thing. It was, you didn't, there was no guarantees that you were going to find this village. And, and later in the book, you do mention that you called your dad um, to keep him posted on your progress. And I didn't realize how invested he was in all of this, or maybe you didn't until you were out there. So it was more than just about you. It was really just kind of tying the family to, to its roots. Oh, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've done a fair bit of travel uh, to different parts. And, you know, it's, this one had real purpose behind it. And, you know, I've, I've, I thought of India, part of it is the fact that, you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, I was born in England, raised in Canada. And oftentimes, it's interesting, because people will, you know, so I'm visibly, I'm, I'm you know, South Asian. Indian and people will say, Oh, what part of India are you from? And you're like, well, actually I was born in England, raised in Canada. And they're like, no, 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 your parents, what part of India are they from? And I'm like, well, my parents come from Fiji. And then they look at me sort of puzzled <laughs> and they're like, are you Indian? And I'm like, well, my grandfather's come from India. And then the flip side is people look at me or sorry, people will say, no, no, you're not Indian. You're Canadian, whatever that identity is. And, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with this of, especially if they're visible minorities or, you know, immigrants and, you know, people trying to, and it's not done maliciously, I would say majority of the times where people are just curious, what, where do you come from? And, you know, uh, that, and, and sometimes I think we struggle with where do we come from? And I think for me, it was more like growing up in Canada. You know, I had a normal Canadian childhood of going to primary school and secondary school and, you know, just, playing road hockey, eating tele TV dinners and, you know, hanging out with friends. And it really wasn't significant for me at that point at a younger life to learn about my identity, my Indian roots. In fact, I pushed it away at a younger age because I was interesting. Like my given name is Ajit. My, you know, name that pet name or my name that was just, you know, somebody just called me Sam and it stuck Every time I would be in primary school or high school, I would run into the class September, the very first time, lecture or class, and run in and tell the teacher, uh, actually, there's a mistake on there. Uh, you'll see a Jeep, but actually it's Sam, so don't use a Jeep, because I was embarrassed at that point in my life that, you know, what are people going to say, like a Jeep, or oh, what kind of name is that? <laughs> so slowly, uh, university, I, I wound up interacting and engaging with a more global audience and started to try to determine more and more about this identity. Cause you know, now they were eating 
you know, uh, Indian meals. They were sort of uh, speaking in another language, which I had some association to. And I started hungering for learning more about this. And then later on, I decided, okay, now's the time. I'm pulling the trigger. But that's where, as I started preparing for this trip, it was more like, I want to go visit. And at the same time, I want to go on this journey. And an interesting concept that I think hit me at this point is, I was a foreigner going to a land that shouldn't be foreign to me. And I, this, this realization was hitting me as I was in the plane on the way to India that I, I'm a foreigner, like, we don't know anybody in India. And, you know, you're going with this, uh, you know, at, you know, the speed of you know 650 miles an hour uh, in a jet and not sure of what you're going to encounter and at the same time i think part of me was thinking you know uh i'm, I'm a tourist but there's a then i started having a differentiation between the term tourist and a traveler and i think sometimes during the trip i i sort of felt i was a tourist but equally, many times I was a traveler, and I think the two are different because a tourist, you know, will read about uh, something like the Taj Mahal and learn about the history, go with a guide, and you experience the Taj Mahal, and that's you know, you take your pictures, you know, the 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 shot of you standing there with your hand on top of one of the spires and whatnot, and you know, the the tourist bit. But the traveler in me started emerging, which was no, I want to experience India more than what it is from the standard, you know, touristy things that you would see. I agree with you. And that's why I love this book, because you did really get out of, you know, you hit the, you went to Delhi, you spent a few days there, and then it really did become this adventure. So you started um, in Delhi. And so I, I wanted to invite you to tell us some of the, your top memorable moments um, and sites to see in Delhi without. Um, well, uh, and share the story about the scarf bargaining experience because that was just hilarious to me. <laughs> right. I, I think, uh, like you say, though, I think that there's the sort of the benchmark sort of standard touristy things that you would do, uh, which, you know, the, the tour guide would take you and, you know, would explain and things like that. But what I found, I think one of the things that I, I think I really appreciated when I went there was, uh, you know, this... Gandhi's place or residence, uh, you know, where he was um, unfortunately assassinated. I think for me, that was because I'm also a, a history buff. And I think that's part of the reason why I travel a fair bit is the fact that uh, uh, history for me is fascinating and, and to learn about it. And, you know, I've seen the movie Gandhi, but also read up on his autobiography and really appreciated uh, who he was. So when I went to you know, Delhi for the first time, you know, and we were traveling around, we did see some touristy sites and the usual touristy sites uh, th that anybody would see. But I think, uh, you know, Birla House, which is where uh, Gandhi was assassinated, the historical component or the, to be in the presence of this individual who's so iconic when it comes to the term of leadership or Nonviolence, and you know, to see the museum of there, the small museum, his blood-stained clothes, his glasses, you know, just see it with your own eyes. And the grounds were 
what's interesting about it is Delhi and India will overwhelm your senses, like all of your senses. But it seemed that when I was at, you know, Birla House, Gandhi's house, there it, it seemed like it was suited and it almost like everything sort of disappeared, like all the noise and everything. And you, you could sort of walk on the grounds and the grass and it just was a peaceful place. And I think that's one place that, that really stuck out for me in, um, in Delhi. And the other one was this place called Jama Masjid. Now, the Jama Masjid is one of the largest uh, mosques in, uh, in India. And, you know, it's massive. But I think the reason why I really sort of appreciated this place, it was like, like the first place we arrived when we got to India from a, from a standpoint. And again, uh, the tour guide brought us there. But when I was walking there, it's like I didn't just want to walk in and look around, take pictures and leave. I ran my hands along the, the sandstone and it was this gritty feel. I stood barefoot on the marble floor and you could feel the coolness but the luster of the marble was now gone uh, the the writing that was on the wall just looked so magnificent like the, the words I, I i couldn't read the 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 words that were written there because it was in arabic and you know it, it just looked so artful and but but what were the words that were locked in there and it was like walking around there and exploring and and just wanting to you know, use my hands to experience it. Because as I mentioned earlier, the thing for anybody who's traveling to India, I don't think you will ever prepare yourself to what you're about to experience. I mean, I've been to busy places like Bangkok and Cairo, even London, nothing compares to how your senses become overwhelmed. And I, I turned it around to rather than you know, the, the smells and sort of cringing at some of the smells we had. Instead, I, I uh, you know, wanted to use my senses to experience and unlock some of the magnificence of this place. So that's why I would run my hands along the wall or stand on the cool marble floor. Like who was here before me and the pilgrims and the, why would they come to a place like that? That's what I want to experience when I was in Delhi. Uh, and that's what uh, I... I I went in trying to unlock for myself. Yeah. And you actually did mention, um, and, and the poverty mm-hmm. and maybe you could speak to that a little bit more because you had a, like most people, it was just very, very upsetting, but there was a quote in your book that you just sort of said, I needed to learn acceptance quickly or this trip would become disaster, a disastrous experience. Right. Can you speak to that? Yeah. So, I mean, again, having traveled to a number of places, I have never seen poverty on that massive of a scale. And normally, like over the last 25 years, I've worked with, supported, and been a part of about 45 nonprofits because I I give of myself back to the community. But when you're there, there is nothing that you can do. And even our guide that was there, he basically said, look, anything you give them does not go to them. It goes to the beggar master who basically looks at them as a commodity. And it's like a roadside lesson I've received, but it's a lesson that I think you can't 
shut your eyes against. Like, I'm sure that there are tours in India. I think they call it Palace on Wheels or there's other elegant tours that may not have you exposed to that sort of poverty. And, but, the, but the thing is, that is life. And there, even though you can't do anything, you have to accept it. And that's where I think where I said in, in the book is I needed to learn acceptance quickly or the trip would become a disastrous experience is the fact that, you know, I, you can't take your home country to India because that's where if you were to compare, you know, let's say living in Canada and Vancouver, which is a very beautiful city. If you, if you go to India and you use that as a comparison on everything and anything, you, you will never experience it. What I instead had done was turned it around to look at it from a different perspective and say, okay, so this is the harsh reality. And, you know, I, I wasn't oblivious to it. I knew that this was going to be staring me straight in the face. Uh, but I, but instead I said, okay, but I want to, I want to see this and I exposed myself to it. But one thing I saw with the people that were there was this resilience. And, you know, we, it's interesting. We all have worries, you know, here, you know, with COVID-19, people are worried about their jobs and their livelihood. And those are real concerns that we have, like I'm not diminishing it. And over there, it's a, it's a different worry that they have. But the idea is we all have these worries, but, you know, these people are built on resilience. And that I think was the reassurance I received that while I can't do anything, I have to expose myself to it. But equally at the same time, I had to accept it that there's nothing I can do in the situation that's going to improve anything for any of these individuals. And, you know, really sort of be that observer at that moment in time and not go in to try to be a hero. Yeah. 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 But that is something I hear from people that go, it just, it can, it can really um, affect you and affect your trip. So you had a very, very unique experience, sh- scarf shopping, um, that really showed a very uh, vivid picture of, of daily life, or not daily life, but just life in Delhi. Tell us about that. Right. Well, and fortunately, we had a friend of ours from here who contacted their niece in India, uh, because I will tell you, you don't want to go blindly into anywhere in India to try to do shopping because you will be eaten alive and spit back out again. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you will be a lot less in your wallet. So we, we basically had uh, this person come and meet us at, a, uh, ho- at our hotel. And oh my gosh, she was, it literally was tactical military precision. She was a hardened shopper. And she basically said, what is it that you need? And she immediately, when my wife said, oh, we are looking for some shawls and scarves and that. And she said, okay, okay. She told the taxi driver exactly where we were going to go. And we arrived at this place called Chandani Chok. And I tell you, Chris, we, we got out and all of a sudden she's marching. And you're talking about you know, maybe, I don't know if you've ever experienced corn mazes or anything like that. <laughs> The, this this was stall after stall. Some of them were just like four feet by four feet. Some of them were almost like mini department stores. But she was working through with military precision exactly where she needed to go. And 
I mean, I'm glad she knew it because I literally would have been lost because she was going around bends and corners uh, around places. And, you know, I tried to stop to take a picture of some spices and suddenly she was disappearing. And I was like, okay, I got to go. She was that fat, that determined and that fast. Now we walked up a pair uh, to this one building and some rickety old stairs. And as we walked into the area, there were these little stalls and we walked into this one place, which was really dark. And all of a sudden this one person appeared and you know, flicked on a light. And all of a sudden we're sitting there. And so we've got the storekeeper with all his goods sitting in front. Uh, the, the, the niece that uh, was, uh, you know, helping us or assigned to us sitting nearby. And my wife was fairly next to her. And I sort of faded in the background against the back wall into total darkness. I did not factor into the situation. <laughs> and uh, then uh, the, the lady asked my wife, what are you looking for? And my wife was saying, okay, I needed this many shawls and this many scarves and that. And the guy just sort of said, okay. And, you know, methodically pulled out scarves and, you know, different uh, materials. And, you know, my wife was looking at it and this person, uh, my, uh, the, the woman was with us, looked at it and just sort of nodded her head or shook her head going, no, this material is not good. And after a while, they, they finally agreed. I think it was like about nine scarves and shawls. And she, uh, the, the woman puts her hand on top of these nine and turns to my wife with a nod and says, is that it? And my wife said, yeah, no, I think that's it. And now it literally was a boxing match because all of a sudden, then the lady turned to the store, the stall keeper and said, okay, name your price. And the guy sort of looks at it, you know, sort of one eye, you know, closed and looking through his lens. And next thing you know, he sort of writes on this piece of paper and then gives it to her and she looks at it and oh my gosh, she got animated. And she was like, you know, you know, we could have gone anywhere we wanted to, but we chose to come to your stall. You're overcharging us. And she scribbles out that number and gives him a different, uh, writes down a different one and puts it back into his arm. He looks at it and looks up to the sky with his arms in the air. And he says, you know, you're, you you know, you come here. And then it basically goes back and forth. And he's pointing at his, the picture of his family which may or may not have been his family and saying, you know, you're pulling out the, you know, the, the food for my kids. And then, you know, writes down a number and gives it to her. She looks at it and just puts her hand on her heart and says, you know, these are my children and my, you know, people that have come from so far away. And what impression are you giving? And, you know, and they go back and forth and they were yelling at each other. And then at the very end, she writes down a number and said, this is it and gives it to him. And he looks at it and then he was like, okay. And they shook hands and then he said, okay, let's have some chai. And uh, then we had tea together. And I was like, what just happened here? Like we had this heated debated discussion and uh, all of a sudden now we're having chai and everything is fine. It's like, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is what shopping is like there. And I love the way you relayed this story. Like you were at a show, like you were just oh, yeah. like watching a movie and then you emerged when it was time to pay for it and have tea. Like yeah. just... And Christine, guess who had to pay? <laughs> you. Yeah, the audience. <laughs> the, uh... um, so just a logistical question. If somebody is planning to go to Delhi, you hired a driver, you call them a tour guide, but it was, you, you hired an individual to kind of take you around. Oh, you had a driver and a guide. Do That's you true. think that that is absolutely necessary? Because you talked about traveler versus 
uh, tourist and travelers kind of bristle sometimes at being guided. Um, what is that a necessary facet to planning a trip to Delhi? Right. I would say that, you know, I personally feel that it's it's a good idea to have a car, a, a driver, a car, and a guide just for the very beginning. And the reason I say that is because if you've never experienced India, uh, you can, you will and can be taken advantage of. And there are horror stories where people have picked up taxis from the airport and the person takes them to some remote place and says, if you don't give me this money, I'm just going to leave you right here. And now you're abandoned there. Uh, I think what uh, the benefit is, and I, you know, I, I don't like doing those big bus tours where, you know, you show up somewhere, take your pictures, get back on the bus. Uh, but a car and driver is, is, is a good way to just start out. But I would say that once you start getting your legs accustomed to it, or as I say, once you're ready to take off the training wheels, which we did eventually, then I would say that, you know, freewheel it and uh, you can rely because then you get a better sense of the people and, uh, you know, who might want to take advantage, who may not want to take advantage. I think what was also beneficial for us, though, is our, our guide, uh, and he switched uh, halfway through uh, along the way. One was to meet us and showed us around Delhi. Then after that, when we went on this golden triangle, uh, the uh, we had a different guide. But what I appreciated is they weren't the guides that I've had in the past where they want to tell you, upon mile upon miles of the history and story of this place. And you stand in one place staring at a blank wall for half an hour. I think what they did and what I appreciated is they would give us a little bit of this information and step back and allow us to explore the place. Uh, because if you don't do that, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. The Taj Mahal, for example, we had a guide that uh, was part of this tour for the first week, and he took us to the Taj Mahal. And again, he explained some of the intricacies and the details, but not in an overwhelming way. But what it also did was he saved us from those random people that will approach you to take your picture or be your guide, and they're going to accost you because they know that you're there by yourself. So he almost became a protective barrier because he allowed us to walk the grounds and uh, just sort of experience the Taj Mahal or any of the sites we went to. So it's almost like having it as that protective piece around you. But I would say just for that maybe first week or first couple of days till you really get your bearings and, and then freewheel as a traveler. Okay, and you teed up the Golden Triangle. You, um, can you explain what exactly is the Golden Triangle? Sure, or the Golden Samosa. It's a triangle, and it's uh, Delhi, Agra, Jaipur, and it's in the shape of a triangle. So from Delhi, oftentimes, uh, again, this is where the, the touristy part, I guess you could say, but this is where you need to incorporate the traveler in you, is in Agra, you've got the Taj Mahal, and that's probably one of the most significant places in all of India. And then Jaipur is a beautiful city uh, that's, that's of pink. And it sort of it works as a triangle, and there's many things to see. Now, if you were talking about the Golden Triangle, like obviously the, the Taj Mahal needs to be experienced, but there is so much more richness. I mean, I think one of the most amazing places I visited in all of India was in Jaipur, and it was the uh, Jantar Mantar, which is the 
astrological park where they've got these massive sundials and they've got all of these astronomical sort of alignments where these mathematicians years, centuries ago, created these, uh, you know, places. And I just remember that that's one place where I asked our guide, you know, can we stay longer? Because I was going around, you know, looking at these massive sundials that were, that were literally to the minute where you could time your watch based on the sundials. And, you know, so that was uh, in Jaipur and then back to Delhi. But, you know, there's so much to see. And that's why I think in the first week it was, it was great because it allowed us to experience India. Again, tourist, traveler, I got to combine both. But you got to see quite a bit and get a bit of a grounding before the rest of the trip began. Yes, and I loved your story about Jaipur and the um, sundials. You asked the guide for 15 more minutes, yep. and he pointed out that you were two minutes late. Exactly. And he, pointed, <laughs> and he pointed to the sundial and he showed me where the 15 was, which I saw. And, and the shaded part had gone two minutes beyond. And we sort of chuckled and then got back in the vehicle. <laughs> um, so just for planning purposes, how far apart are each of these? And I know the traffic is very tough in, in that part of India. So could you just, for planning purposes, tell us how far apart they were? And I know you stayed in Jaipur. Yeah. And well, we stayed in Agra, Jaipur, oh. uh, you know, all of those places. Uh, but, you know, I, I agree, like, uh, from a distance perspective, I don't know the exact mileage, but Delhi traffic, and then once you hit Agra traffic, it just comes to a standstill. The yeah. open highway, it, it allows you more of that opportunity to travel. And same with Agra to Jaipur, like, as soon as you're trying to leave uh, Agra, you, you hit traffic. And as you get near Jaipur, you hit traffic. Um, my thoughts were, it's probably about a five to six hour drive, if I'm not mistaken. But what's what's nice about it is the fact that, you know, the, the countryside is unique. And when you're traveling in that region from Delhi to Agra, Agra to Jaipur and Jaipur back to Delhi, and you take the time to look out the window and you know you see the fields what's interesting especially in rajasthan which is where jaipur is is the brightness and the vibrancy of the colors of what the people wear like the women are adorned in so many different colored saris the men have these plumed turbans that are multicolored in bright reds and bright yellows and blues and you know you see them dotted in the fields or walking along the streets uh, uh, the roadside so it's 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 a it's a magnificent ride and one thing i had done was i had downloaded some music which was sort of the sitar and tabla which is the string instrument and the the drums and you know just sort of calming music and i would have my headphones on while we were driving and it literally blended with the countryside so you really felt like you were you know somehow connecting yourself to the land now and the people yeah and I loved when you talked about the colors it reminded me of there's a movie called The Namesake and it's uh, a, a young couple moves to Boston moves from India to Boston because uh, the husband is in graduate school and the woman has these beautiful saris and she comes into like a January winter and 
her clothes like she's just so vibrant and bright and everybody it's like it's cold and dark and dreary and it's such a cool image when they start this and eventually she gets a big ski jacket and bundles up but like she is just popping with color and everybody else there is like in navy blue and grays and it's the colors just so it the contrast is is great um so that's what i thought of when i was reading that so before let's stay in jaypore for just a little bit uh, because when you you did such a great job explaining the sensory overload of delhi but i got the impression that jaypore you had a little bit more tranquility and i guess coupled with the the pink you said um tell us a little bit more about that yeah where the hotel we stayed in uh right across the street from it was a tranquil lake and there's a summer palace it's uh you know not used anymore but it sits on this lake and i just remember you know it wasn't in the right in the heart of Jaipur. It was sort of a little bit out of the way and across from this lake. So I would at nighttime or just sorry sunset time, I walk down to the to the lake and you know just you can hear the frogs croaking and you know the the sun was setting and then you know sort of the the you could see the summer palace slowly disappearing in the night and then in the morning I was up very early and I wanted to see the sunrise and the vibrancy of the colors there, but it was much more calming than, than the rush of Delhi. I think Delhi is just a, a city where you're always on the go. And, you know, when we were in Jaipur, you know, like you say, the, the, the pink of the city and, you know, having the, the lake and sort of more of a, a bit of a slower pace is something that allows you to stop. And I think it allowed me to sort of appreciate India from a from another layer and level because Delhi just seemed a bit rushed and you know you were you were going from here to there and then over to another place and then back in the car uh, you know with with spurts but in in Jaipur it just sort of seemed more calming and uh, slow. It was also interesting because um, there's a I believe um, Homayan's tomb. Uh, it's on the on the road to Agra. And what I appreciated about Hamayan's tomb is this, the fact that it, you know, is sort of located out of the way. And, you know, I found that, you know, there were, you know, peaceful areas that you'll find around. So it's like, you'll find these little oases uh, that, you know, if you have a good per, uh, person to show you around, uh, you know, I think Hamayan's tomb, or in this case, Agbar's tomb near Agra, you know, you'll find these little gems which are off the beaten track and, you know, where they leave you. And Akbar's tomb was interesting because it was like, you know, these beautiful, peaceful grounds. You've got this monument in front of you that's, uh, you know, adorned, like lo looked at it. And then you sort of enter and it's like you walk down this corridor and into this big empty room where there's a tomb and one bare bulb. And I'm just like, it, it really gave me a, a, a strange sense because there was opulence on the outside and yet emptiness on the inside. And, you know, I think what uh, it has helped me to better understand and appreciate is, you know, people who may say that they're going through a difficult time, they may seem happy on the, on the outside, but yet they're really struggling and suffering on the inside. I just found that at a place like that, it, it, 
it was not a happy place to me when I when I got there. Uh, it just seemed like he was so alone and just in that place, and it was very dark and dreary. But yet the outside was adorned and it looked nice. And but these are the things that you find when you again go off that beaten track. Well, and you had said that it's helpful to have a driver and a guide to find those nuggets. Do you have any recommendations for how one does that? Because you, you did mention there's a a lot of drivers that might take you somewhere and leave you. Um, What, what are the best practices for finding a good guide? Right. Uh, I think uh, with the internet searches that are available, reviews and reputable companies, Uh, I think that's the best way, but equally, by word of mouth, if somebody's gone to India and they've experienced that, you know, then the recommendation, I think, uh, bodes well as well. I know that what I've done is, you know, passed along that information to friends of mine. And then they, it's almost like the, the guide and the driver takes that person because, because when you leave them, and I will tell you this, that they literally embrace you as family when you're with them, even as a guide and, and they're showing you around. They do it with, and especially the good ones, they do it out of honesty and they do it out of authenticity that this is my country. I want you to experience it. And they get so much joy and pleasure in seeing you enjoy it. So when I tell my you know friends, oh, you got to you know, visit this. And I let the people back in India that I keep, that I've kept in, that I had kept in touch with. And when that person arrives, it's, they're embraced like family right away. So that's, I think the best way is to, to go by reviews or talk to people who have been. We are very good at bridging to the next topic. You talked about family and warmth. Um, so you hit a lot of the traveler, uh, tourist sites and then you kind of got your yourself ready to set off on this mission and I'm just going to call it a mission um to find this village that your grandfather left in the early 1900s and you were going off of oral history you didn't even know how to spell the village name so I'll let you take it from there I mean you just this sounds like there's just no guarantee of of coming to, to find this place and you still did it. Right. Well, it literally was looking for a needle in a haystack and not really knowing where the haystack was. And, you know, there's a lot of people that said, you know, just go to India, enjoy yourself. Don't worry about finding the village. You're not going to find it. Or if you find it, you know, you're not going to get a good reception because they'll be very weary of why are you here and where, where have you been? And are you here for making a land claim? So these things emerged in my mind a little bit with regards to what is this going to be like? And I started doing some research and, you know, we thought that the village name was called Chadori. My father said it's about five miles from a post office in Garshankar and the district is Hushiarpur. So there's this big district, there's a post office and the village is about five miles away. So fortunately there's internet searches and I tried to do internet searches and, sort of didn't find anything in Hoshiarpur. Well, I've got a uh, step cousin and he understood that I was going on this journey. And he, two days before I left, he sent me a note from Fiji, because that's where he lives. And he said, I understand you went, you're going in search of the village. I just want you to know that I made it to Garshankar, where the post office is, but I didn't find the village. I did not. 
But the name of the village is Janodi. And I thought Chadodi, Janodi, it sounds very similar. And when I went on my internet search, again, trying to name, take the name Janodi, there wasn't a necessarily a Janodi, but there's this place called Jandoli. So think of it as, you know, the oral history being passed around. Chadodi, Janodi, Jandoli, like they all sort of sound similar. And the thing with Jandoli, it's five miles from Garshankar, which is what my father said, you know, the village is five miles from Garshankar. So you go with whatever information you have. A day before I left, my cousin in California, uh, he's, his father was my dad's older brother who actually went to the village, but he, my, my cousin didn't know anything about where this village was. But he sent me this photograph and it's about three and a half inches by three and a half, it's faded. But these were people from the village that his father had taken. So he said, look, I don't have any information about the village, but here's this photograph that I have. And he gave me this photograph. So here you are going to India, not quite sure the name of the village. All you know is it's in Hoshiarpur, five miles from Garshanka. We think it's Jandoli, and I have a picture in my, in my hand now, possession. That's it. So got to India, the first week is that exploration piece of orientation and experiencing India for that. The second week is where we went up north to the Punjab in order to, part of it, go to the Golden Temple, which is the holiest place for all Sikhs, which is what our family background is, and also to go find the village. So we managed to get to this place called Jalandar, which is about 35 miles, 40 miles away from where we anticipate or think that the village is. Now, we could find Jandoli on a map that I bought there. Showed it to another driver. Uh, actually, it was great because this driver was a recommendation from a friend of ours here. And it wasn't a guide. He was just a driver. And he said, I think I know where Jandoli is. So that, that the one day we left the hotel, we bought sweets like uh, in case we found this village. And anticipation that, you know, maybe this is it, like Jandoli might be our village. And we drive and we, we came to Jandoli and we came to a house and it was a courtyard and people sitting around. And they wound up, you know, sort of creening and looking our way. We got out of the vehicle and our driver. Now, the thing is, my wife is totally fluent in Hindi. I can speak it and understand it, but I make people laugh because of the way I speak. And our driver is totally fluent in uh, both Punjabi as well as Hindi. And we, had, we were able to converse with them and show them the picture. And they looked at the picture and they called the village elder. And this gentleman came by and I think he was very proud and very uh, well respected, but he came and he had a suit on. And I think what he appreciated is the fact that he could actually practice his English with us and uh, learned about us and who we were. And he stared at the picture, looked at it and said, you know, uh, I'm not sure about the house in the picture. I mean, the picture's old, but he said, the guy in the back in the picture, in the background, I think we know where he lives. And all of a sudden you're like, what? And you sort of perk up and, you know, they've given us tea. You don't want to be impolite. You want to drink, but I want to get going. But 
you know, they brought us a second cup and I'm like, I really feel like I want to go, but I was very patient in that, trying to be patient. <laughs> we got in the vehicle. So this gentleman, the elder got in the vehicle with us and we drive to a house. And, and I tell you, the heart starts beating because what if this is our family? And we get to the house, the elder gets out as well as our driver and they're talking to the people in the house and they, the people in the house are creening and looking at us. And, you know, I'm sort of looking at them and all of a sudden, I think I got the, the part that I wasn't anticipating, which was that shaking of the head of no, we're not sure. And I was like, Oh, but then it was the guy start or the person starts pointing up the road and you're like, okay, here we go again. So we get in the vehicle or they, they get in the vehicle. We drive to another house and same thing. This was repeated about five times. We get to a place, about 10 people gather around, look at the picture. Somebody says, Oh, I think this is the place. Two people get into our vehicle. We drive to a place and this was sort of repeated. And I remember in the last house we went to in Jondoli, you know, we wound up seeing this person and he looked at the picture and immediately we knew this was not the house. Wow. And that's where the, that's where that search ended. And we came back to where we started from in Jandoli and I, I was disappointed. And I remember the elder basically said, you know, don't worry about it. You know, if you want, come back tomorrow be a part of our family. And Aww, I, was like, I know. And that's what, that was the really sweet thing. And uh, so we, we thanked them. And I remember that's where I went back to the hotel. And I have to admit, I was really disappointed. And I wrote that in my journal that maybe sometimes you try to climb an Everest and you get so close to the summit, but due to weather or some conditions, you have to turn around and can't realize it. And I, I really felt like that was it because we had nothing to go by. Now, that night I phoned my father and I called him and I, and I, he just sort of picked up the phone and we started talking and I said, you know, I tried, but it's didn't really work out. And he just said, you know what, you've done more than what anyone has done. Uh, you know, you're, you're experiencing India. You know, my father's never been there. He said, uh, you know, I really want to hear about the stories. And I hung up the phone and I was like, I'm not going to give up that easy. And there was a reason for this, and there were two reasons. One reason is the realization that if I don't try this again somehow, right now, the link to our past is just a thin thread, and that's going to break. If I don't do this, and it breaks, and it skips another generation, it's gone forever. The other part is, when I was nine and a half years old, my father had an industrial accident and became a paraplegic. And you know, never walked again and, you know, had never been to India, but he's done a lot for us. And I felt like I really wanted to do this for him. I wanted to reconnect the past. So the next day, my wife thought, okay, we couldn't find the village. Let's go shopping. And uh, I, I hate to disappoint her because when our driver came back, he's, he was disappointed too, because he really wanted to do this for us too. He took it as a personal challenge. Well, Next thing you know, the driver came back uh, to our hotel the next morning and we talked and, you know, he was like, okay, I'm not sure what we can do. And I said, look, can we just go to Garshankar, the post office area? Let's just talk to people. Let's try to see if anybody's heard of Jan uh, Janodi, Chadodi or something like that. 
And he said, yeah, okay, let's do this. My wife grumbled a little bit because now her shopping trip was gone. And we got in the vehicle and we got to Garshankar and our driver, it literally with a photograph, walking around, literally like somebody's lost their puppy and they're walking around saying, have you seen my puppy? Have you seen my puppy? But in this case, it's just <laughs> a picture. Do you know this family? Do you know where this place is? And suddenly somebody, because my window was open in the distance said, oh, Chadori's up the road this way. And I was like, what? And, and I, I turned to him and I said, did you just say Chadori? And he said, yeah, Chadori, it's up the road this way, about five miles, six miles. I was like, and all of a sudden, but this time your heart's starting to race, but there's this, uh, I don't know. So our driver gets the directions and we drive and we come to this archway and there's this elderly man. He's probably around 80 years old, staring at the ground, sort of a, not a really good sentry, but he's sitting there. And so we start talking to him and our driver talks to him in Punjabi, shares the picture with him. And this old man looks at the picture. He says, okay, yeah, the, the house, I don't know, but uh, the person in the back looks like so-and-so. And he says, I know where that is. Now he gets into our vehicle and I'm thinking to myself, this guy is like 80 years old. He looks like he fell off a charm bracelet and you know, how can he even make out anybody in the picture? I, I have a hard time making it out. And this guy's like 80. So we get to this house and, you know, he's pointed to the house. He said this one. And collectively, this sentry, as well as our driver, sort of walk up and we're maybe about 10 feet behind them. And all of a sudden, people from inside the, the house see us. And they come out. So there's, again, about 10 people. So 10 people come out. And they're sort of all looking at this picture. And I suddenly heard the woman who was, who was, in, who was there. She looked at the picture and she goes, that's me. You know, because she recognized herself in the shawl, white shawl. She it just occurred to me that I didn't put my, I only put myself in your shoes of finding what you were looking for. But could you imagine if someone showed up at your house? Yes. A picture of you. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, who are you? Yeah. And that's where, where she's looking at this picture and she's like, who are you? And I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? And then, but then we, as soon as I explained who we were, it suddenly tears started flowing and she came and hugged us because she knew who we were like in relation wise, but all of a sudden we had reconnected and it just was found. But I'm just like, at that point, after we had sort of, you know, pulled back and, and uh, we, we sort of had uh, started talking, I suddenly looked around and that old man had gone, like he walked away without saying anything. It's almost like my job here is done. <laughs> uh, sort of walked away and then other people in the village started showing up and coming up and you know um, you know they all found out who we were and how we're related and the way I can describe this is so my grandfather had an older brother the family members we had just met were my grandfather's older brother's entire family now okay. many of them had passed on but that's where they understood my grandfather and whatnot. And, you know, we spent the whole day just reconnecting and taking a tour of the village. And I think for me, again, 
Christine, I was, I was in this whole piece of having that persistence, not listening to the noise and overcoming obstacles. I had Ziploc bags in my pocket for this reason that if I found the village, I wanted to walk out to the fields, which I did. I scooped up dirt. I put it in the Ziploc bag and sealed it so that I could bring that home to my father because he's never going to go. And I wanted him to have the, the, the soil from where his grandfather comes from, where we come from and where our ancestors have come from. But that's the story of how I found the village. That is a great story. Um, I was so happy for you when you, when you found it. Now, I did have a lingering question. Yeah. Was anybody mad at your grandfather for just disappearing? <laughs> Sounds like there's no hard feelings. No. And, and you know what? It actually wasn't, there wasn't any. And, uh, you know, I think the, what it basically was is that either, and that's where the stories are a little bit mixed and we're not sure. He either had a fight with his parents or he had planned to go on an adventure with his best friend and looked for an excuse and then basically just left in the uh, overnight. Um, I think he had written letters or had somebody write letters for him. Uh, but for the most part, no, there wasn't any animosity. But uh, I think that, you know, they were just really pleased because my, my dad's older brother had somewhat reconnected, but for so many years, nobody had ever shown back up again. So yeah, no, everything was fine. <laughs> well, I also, I was very interested in this area of India too. You told a great um, anecdote about seeing the border closing ceremony. Um, can you explain that? Because I actually was a little, I it's on the border of, of Pakistan. So I'll just let you take it from there. But there's a very ceremonial closing yeah. every night. Right. And to be fair, it's what our, our driver had told us about it, because I think by the time we arrived there, it was too early. But um, it's called the Wagga border, and it's near Amritsar. I think, again, maybe about 25, 30 miles. Again, I could be wrong on that. But it's the, it's the main, and own, main border between Pakistan and India. And there's this, uh, back in the uh, late uh, 1940s, when the partition happened, where uh, you know, India, well, British rule, when they were pulling out, they drew a line and they basically separated India and Pakistan. But the problem is that there were a lot of Muslims in India and a lot of Sikhs and Hindus that were in Pakistan. And there was a lot of bloodshed. You know, so many people died and the border was created. Now, what happens at the border is it's like a stadium. There's two sides. One side is on Pakistan's side. One side is on India's side. And again, I'm going by what our driver told us and then watching the YouTubes. I, I have to go back and actually experience it. But both sides, it's like a stadium with cheering crowds and they play loud music. They dance and, you know, they talk, you know, they basically taunt the other side in a friendly manner, uh, you know, with regards to comments of long live India or long live Pakistan, and then they go at it, and then they go quiet. And both militaries have a, a parade, uh, a small parade group that comes out from the Pakistan side and the India side. And their, their turbans are like these giant plumes, and they do these large goose steps, uh, both sides. They, they mirror each other. And they, 
come along, they see each other, they shake hands and they lower their flags and they slam the gates. But as they shake their hands, it's almost like, you know, you are, you know, having disputes between each other, yet you're able to maintain this semblance of, you know, some sort of friendship, you know, where this is a ceremony that you do to respect both countries. And it's an interesting ceremony because it's done with a lot of pomp and ceremony, and it's done every day. Rain or shine doesn't matter. It's done every time as they close the border. That's the ceremony. I'm going to have to look up the YouTube video. I didn't realize that was there, but yeah, that caught my eye. So another reason I wanted to have you on this podcast is that you did go up to Punjab, which is is off the beaten path, so to speak. So you, is there something for travelers other than the Golden Temple? I saw Amherstar has a university up there or a college. So you think it is worth venturing that far up? Um, you obviously had this mission to find your village, but um, I mean, should it be a destination for those who are going to India? Oh, Christine, there's so much to see in India. And that's why we concentrated just in sort of three areas and didn't try to spread ourselves thin by going from one end of India to the other, concentrating in one area. Uh, I think that, you know, if you really want to experience, like I would say, you know, Rajasthan, which is where Jaipur is, is different than Agra, which is different than Delhi, which is different than the Punjab. And if you've only got a short time, concentrate in a certain area. But the thing that's really great is, you know, Amritsar has the Golden Temple. Uh, you got the Wagga border there. But then there's also dotted throughout Sikh temples uh, and uh, other places. And Chandigarh is a modern city in India with a university and modern, uh, uh, you know, uh, the city amenities and things like that. So it's almost like you have the comfort of stability or, or you know, like being a traveler but you can go to different places that are on, on the beaten track because there will be many places that have historical significance. Uh, even in uh, Amritsar, there's a place right near the Golden Temple where, in well, if you ever watched the movie Gandhi, uh, there was a, a place where the British troops had killed a lot of Sikhs that were protesting, and it was a massacre that happened. Again, it's something of historical significance that was around the uh, independence piece of India that uh, has such a significance there. So there are, there are certainly places and things to see along the way. And one of the things that uh, I got intrigued by was the resourcefulness of the, of, the, of the locals. So as we're driving and I see these huts and they're sort of this dirty, brown sort of mud huts and I talked to my driver and he pulled over and we went up to a house and he basically went to this little shack or hut and pulled out a little cake of a you know it almost looked like dirt and he said you know have a look at this and I looked at it and he said that's cow dung <laughs> but it's been dried and you're like and he's like take a sniff I was like no I'm not gonna sniff cow dung and he's <laughs> like no take a sniff and uh, but it's been dried and when you sniffed it, it, it had a very earthy tone to it. And, you know, I'm glad he didn't ask me to taste it, but uh, it had an <laughs> earthy tone to it. And, you know, he said, this is what they use once it's dried as a fire, like uh, to keep the fire going. And so you're not burning wood because it's, it's uh, got a lot of grass components to it. It's dried, it's a cake, and it lasts for a long time because it's compressed. And I was thinking, 
the resourcefulness of people, you know, uh, what just, but those are things that you will find off the beaten track. And the other caution I give, uh, I think, uh, as you may have read is the, the priests, especially the Hindu yes. priests. I can't let you go without telling this story because <laughs> this cracked me up. Well, yeah, we were traveling from Amritsar to Jalandhar uh, in the Punjab. And as we're driving in our uh, SUV, I sort of look out the window and there's this van next to us with about five orange saffron robed men. And they're waving to us almost like in the sense of slow down or stop. And I was like, oh. And I turned to my driver and I said, we've got people next to us and they're flagging us. I mean, is something wrong with our car? And he said, no, no. What they want is for us to pull over because they see you and they know you're tourists and they want to do a roadside religious ceremony, which we call a puja, because they make money off this. It's a money-making thing. So they want to uh, have you pull over, give you blessings and whatnot. And, uh, you know, and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. And he says, no, we didn't want to. So they hit the gas and it's almost like, you know, we took off and then they just sort of, you know, slowly shuddered, shuddered, <laughs> shuddered. And they did a U-turn and went away. And I think the way I describe it is, you know, uh, Sir Attenborough's rendition of, you know, when you look at the uh, blue planet and, you know, the jackals are trying to catch the, the, the gazelle and the, you know, the gazelle accelerates and the jackals now have to retreat and hunt for another day that's how i felt on this uh, one piece that that the fact that while there's um a lot of people that are so authentic so genuine but equally at the same time if you're not aware you will be taken advantage of by some people that in the name of religion are you know, that's what they do is they take advantage. But it's a bit of a humorous piece that I can talk about in, now in that regard. Well, it's a great travel nugget to end on. So if you're ever in India and there's saffron-robed men trying to flag you down, that's Don't. what you want. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop. But this has been so interesting. I'm so glad that you found the village. The book is called Lost and Found. It is beautiful. The pig, the the cover is just gorgeous. Um, and Sam, thanks so much for, for coming on Travel Nuggets. Well, and I thank you. I mean, as a storyteller, I mean, just sitting here, being able to share a story with my hands motioning, which you can't see, you know, and reliving all of this. I, I really do thank you for the opportunity of sharing. And uh, I hope that people get a chance to read uh, Lost and Found and Seeking, it's called Lost and Found, Seeking the Past, Finding Myself, because really it was about finding myself as well. But thank you so much for the opportunity. Great. And I'll post a link to the book on the Travel Nuggets website and on Facebook. Perfect. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Travel Nuggets. I'll post more information about this episode, including helpful links on the Travel Nuggets website. Please visit travelnuggetspodcast.squarespace.com. There, you can check out additional episodes or download them wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love to hear your feedback and ideas. Email me at travelnuggetspodcast at gmail.com or join the Travel Nuggets Facebook group to share your thoughts and ideas. See you next time.